Gracious God, thank you again for this time of worship. Thank you for the time and communion that we will have after the sermon. But I, I praise you, Lord, and thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your word. And I pray that it would be, it would, all the words of your truth would fall upon open ears and readied hearts, and you would speak to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to Mark chapter 13. And uh, this uh, chapter is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a famous teaching of Jesus foretelling the future. And the answer that he gives the disciples when they ask him, when are these things going to happen and what is the sign of your coming and what is the sign of the end of the age? Uh, It's the longest answer that he gives in all the Gospels to any other single question. So um, that's interesting in in and of itself. The Olivet Discourse is found also in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21. And it's fascinating to listen in on what King Jesus privately tells the disciples during Passion Week, just a few days before he's crucified. And I say fascinating because I, like many of us, have a curiosity about when the end will come and what it's going to be like. Uh, the word eschatology, it comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. So eschatology means the study of the end. And so some of you are asking, the end of what? And the answer to that would be the end of the world as we know it. And don't we all want to know what the end of the, of the story is? What's the end of the book? When does that happen and what's it going to be like? Well, the Lord gives his disciples a glimpse into the future here in this Olivet Discourse. But rather than it being a complete picture with all the exact details and dates and particulars, it's more of a sketch of the things to come. It's kind of like what I told you a couple Sundays ago, uh, preaching from the, the widow's mite and the, the principle there that Jesus gives to the, the disciples Uh, He introduces them to that principle of of giving and proportional giving and sacrifice, right? And then the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the scriptures kind of flesh all that out, right? We get more detail in the rest of the Bible. And so this is another one of those areas of teaching, of doctrine, of theology that Jesus is introducing here in answer to the disciples' questions, but it's fleshed out in, in the rest of the New Testament. And there's even additional affirming information in the Old Testament. So, as we begin to look at Jesus' sketch of future things that he tells of his disciples, I think it would be helpful to keep just a few things in mind, all right? So, before we get into the text here, let's try to, uh, hopefully, this will clarify things and help make things clearer rather than muddy them. So, here goes. Number one, a fact of history. Okay, in A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem okay, in a big way. Okay, we're going to get to that in a moment. But it was a complete and utter destruction of the temple and the city. And it happened roughly 40 years after Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse here in Mark chapter 13. Okay? So that's one thing. Second thing is this. There's much, much debate among theologians over the exact events that Jesus is foretelling of here in this discourse. Okay? Lots, of, lots of ink spilled, lots of pages, lots of books. Um, and that's because there are portions of what Jesus says that seem to point directly to that event 40 years later, the siege and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? But there are also other things that he says which seem most naturally to refer to things in the end times, still to come. Okay, so on the one hand, some commentaries believe that the whole Olivet Discourse here, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, relates to the A.D. 70 destruction. Okay, everything in there is about that. And they interpret Christ's coming as figurative rather than literal. Okay, so that demolition was a figurative symbol of Jesus' judgment, God's judgment at that time. Okay, so that does one. And then on the other extreme, there are those who interpret the entire Olivet Discourse as foretelling the end times. 
Okay, no reference whatsoever to this destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Okay? And, of course, there's all the in-between ones, right? Uh, almost endless, the number of variations in the middle. Uh, scholars who attempt to show the portions of the discourse that apply to A.D. 70 destruction and then portions that des- describe the end times. And they, like, every like little passage and every event, they say this belongs to that and that belongs to this. Okay? So, to me, it seems the best way to understand this is to take into account the context, right? Jesus is not giving the disciples the exact blow-by-blow breakdown of the specific details of the future and of his coming. He does give some detail here, but it's not a precise, chronological, all-inclusive explanation. So we're getting a glimpse into the future. Jesus gives this sketch of several events and acts of judgment, and we actually can see them as spread throughout history. Okay, this 2,000 years later, he foretells these things as a kind of melded composite unit. Right. So um, lastly, I want you to think about this. Okay? Some details of Jesus' prophecy have been and will be fulfilled at more than one point in history. Right? Um, someone taught it to me this way. It's like when you're, you're hiking like in a, like a, a mountain range. Okay? You're walking forward and you see one mountain peak, right? And you keep going a little further, going up a little further, and then you see another mountain peak beyond, right? Go a little further and you see another mountain peak. So it's like these prophecies are, are getting fulfilled throughout the course of time and history. And so even Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation, which we're going to look at a little more closely next week, um, that was fulfilled at more than one point in past and future history. Okay, so I agree with the, the commentator, Stuart Weber. And he says in his Matthew commentary, listen to this, the composite interpretation of the Olivet Discourse makes more sense if we see historical events the way the Bible sees them. With our linear Western logic, we are sometimes limited in how we see history. We want to know exactly when an event begins and when it ends, as well as the order in which everything happens. Such details were not as important to the Eastern-thinking biblical authors. We want crisp, clean lines, while the Bible, in keeping with its Eastern setting, sometimes speaks in terms of gradual transitions and blended distinctions, end quote. All right, so hopefully that's clarifying rather than muddying. But let me just say this, all that being said, it seems quite clear as we read chapter 13. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but for time's sake, we're just going to read today's passage. Um, It seems quite clear in this Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives some clear indicators of a few major future events to come in the future. And you know what? He wants his people to be ready. He wants his people to be ready. And so the title of this sermon series, which is going to last like four parts, okay, is um, Being Prepared for Jesus' Return. Being Prepared for Jesus' Return. And so um, before I read Mark 13, 1 through 13, which is our passage this morning, I just want to give you the layout of these next four parts um, that we're going to be looking at. Okay, so part one is, is today. And in your bulletins there, it's subtitled, the beginning of the end. And it's sort of the intro to to all of this, right? And it covers the first 13 verses. And verses 14 to 23 is part two, which I'm calling the awfully great tribulation. Okay, let me just read uh, just verse 14 to you. It says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so he talks about a tribulation like none other in world history. Okay? So that's 14 to 23, part two. And then part three, which is going to have two parts, is verses 24 to 37. Okay, the first part of part three is um, 24 to 27, which is the second coming is coming. Okay, the second coming is coming. And so that's going to have uh, two parts, and uh, 24 to 27, and then 24 to 30, uh, sorry, 30. 25 to 28 to 37 is part three. The second coming is coming. All right. So 
Lastly, let me just say, I'm just going to try to wrap all this up uh, with one extra message. Um, and it's going to be this, this eschatology excursus. Because, like I said, Jesus doesn't fill in all the blanks here, right? Um, but I want to I wanna just um, kind of fill in uh, some things that Jesus doesn't talk about as we um, just wrap that up. So I'm going to take a whole message to do that at the end, okay? So it's actually going to be five in total. Um, so anyway, this last main principle before reading the text is this, um, which is the sermon theme. Okay, it's going to be the sermon theme for the next four. But um, listen, believers are exhorted to always be prepared for the Lord's return. Okay, we're being exhorted to always be prepared for the Lord's return, persevering in faith and faithfulness to the end. Okay, persevering in faith and faithfulness to the end. And I'll probably have that up on the screen or in, in insert um, in coming Sundays, but, um, and we'll repeat it today. But that's the main idea. Okay, the disciples, once again, they want to go straight to the privileged life in the kingdom, right? They want their positions of authority and power and just they're arguing over who's the greatest. And they're asking these questions. They want to skip the hardships that Jesus has told them repeatedly are coming. It was not to be the way that they imagined it or wanted it. And Jesus gives several commands to the, to the disciples in this chapter. And almost all of them have to do with being ready, being prepared, being on the alert why is that? Because no one knows exactly when the Lord's going to return. And nobody knows the day or the hour. So listen, the purpose of prophecy is not primarily to satisfy my curiosity or my fascination with the things in the end times. Okay, I know a lot of people who get really, really caught up in that stuff. And whether they're you know, just people that I know or people I meet in the Starbucks, they see me reading the Bible. They, they want to start talking about the, the end times. And did you hear about this? And this guy says this. And you should see this website. And they completely get obsessed with things in the future and trying to figure out stuff to the nitty-gritty detail. But that's not the purpose, folks. The purpose of prophecy is to exhort us to holiness and godliness. Okay? The, the disciples' faith and obedience is what Jesus emphasizes when he tells them of the future. Right. So you read in Matthew 25, um, the parable of the, the ten virgins, the parable of the, the talents. It's these exhortations for them to be faithful, to be ready, to be prepared. And so this is all to steward our time and our money and our opportunities to wisely invest in the coming kingdom of God. So we're told about the future so that we might change our current present behavior. Hey, this is what that preparation is for, for the future, for future rewards. We should ask ourselves as we get into this wonderful Olivet Discourse, okay, what difference should this make in my life now so that I may be more ready for the future? Okay, that's what we should be asking ourselves as we listen to these next um, sermons in this series. Right? So with all that, if you are able, please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 13. And this is the word of God. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's the Olivet Discourse, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. 
for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Please be seated. So we have just kind of three very simple points um, and just just anchor points to our, our message today. The first is the destruction of the temple, verses 1 and 2. The second is the disciples' questions, 3 and 4. And the last is the king foretells the future. That's the rest of it, 5 to 13. Okay, And it's just, uh, just a, w- a way to make our way through the text here. So verses 1 and 2, uh, I've already mentioned it, but the destruction of the temple, as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple now, okay, right? He's, he's taught, he's warned, he's told them about the scribes and Pharisees, his comments about the widow's giving. And one of the disciples, maybe it's Peter, representing the others, calls Jesus' attention to the great temple buildings. And by the way, those buildings were quite magnificent, incredibly grand structures that made up the, the temple proper, okay, as well as the courts and the just chambers and walkways and porches and porticos and everything that was um, around there. The disciple, whoever he was, was pointing to the astonishing size of those great stone buildings. Uh, the historian Josephus records that each of them measured 25 by 12 by 8 cubits. And that's 37 and a half feet by 18 by 12. Okay, some of those massive stones weighed over 100 tons. And some of us might be aware that Herod the Great began the construction of this temple in 20 B.C. So at this point, when Jesus is giving this discourse, it's been around about 50 years. And that temple was recognized as one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. But isn't it interesting, if not inappropriate, that the disciples stopped to admire these temple buildings when Jesus has spent the, the past week condemning the practices uh, that were going on in the temple. Hey, it doesn't seem apparent to them that this is vanity. All this outward religious activity, it doesn't amount to true worship. Hey, the glory, once again, is in the externals, Right? It doesn't reflect the truly glorious God whose house it is. Jesus said that this should have been a house of prayer for all the nations, but the leaders and people have turned it into a robber's den, right? That was Mark 11, 17. So Jesus says that this beautiful, enormous, magnificent temple that you see is going to go down. Utter destruction. Not even one of its huge stones will hold up. And as I mentioned in the things to keep in mind before, this was a prophecy which was terribly and literally fulfilled in A.D. 70. And the historian, Jewish historian Josephus, once again helps us in his Wars of the Jews. He says that the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They devastated Judea. 1.1 million Jews died by slaughter and starvation many by crucifixion, with another 100,000 Jews taken prisoner. Uh, Titus, who was the future emperor, he's the one who led this attack, and he originally hoped to spare the temple in its, all of its uh, just magnificence, but later he gave orders to demolish the whole city and the whole temple. And he ruined it, the entire thing, to such an extent, so thoroughly that no trace of it remains today. Not even their exact location on the temple mount is certain. This was God using human instruments to pour out his judgment on the false Jewish religious leaders and system that the Lord condemned. So this is the the destruction of the temple. So what follows is the disciples' questions in verses 3 and 4. 
Okay, Mark, once again, says that it was the three, Peter, James, and John, along with Peter's brother, Andrew. And they're asking him privately. Matthew 24, verse 3, which is the parallel account. Um, he writes this, uh, there, as far as their question, questions go. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Okay, so what were the disciples expecting of the Messiah's return? That's a, a good question that we should ask. What were they expecting as they asked Jesus this, these questions? Okay, basically, um, this is what they were expecting of the Messiah, who they're talking to, right? who they believe in, like standing right there in front of them, sitting right there, actually. So this, these are some of the things that they were expecting. Okay, the nations would ally and gather themselves against the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to defeat them all. Okay? He was totally, he's going to totally defeat them. And then dispersed Jews throughout the world would be gathered into Jerusalem. And, and then Palestine would be the center of the world and the rest of the nations would be subjected to it. Right? All the nations would be subdued under Messiah's rule. That's what they were expecting. Okay? And this is like the disciples, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. Interestingly, this sounds a lot like what will happen in the what? The second coming, right? In the millennial kingdom, which we'll learn about at some point in this series. But the disciples and the Jews and at large thought it was at the first. So interestingly, folks, they asked the same question in Acts 1 verse 7. Remember that? This is after Jesus is resurrected, uh, shortly before he ascends, right? Acts 1, verse 7, um, the disciples, they came together. They were asking him, saying, Lord, it's verse 6, actually, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Okay, this is after Jesus has been resurrected and he's been around for 40 days on the earth. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Yeah, that's verse 7. So um, the point is, uh, they, they had an expectation of an earthly kingdom rule of the Messiah. Okay? So what is Jesus' answer? Well, verses 5 to 13 is what we're going to cover today. And Jesus begins to foretell the future. Okay? The king foretells the future. This is prophecy and this is preparation. He gives them commands, right? He says in verse 5 there, see to it. He says, be on guard. He tells them later, do not be frightened. So be prepared, be ready. And there's a number of events and happenings that Jesus says are going to happen in the future. He didn't say how far into the future or how near. He doesn't specify at what point. And he says that many people will come in his name claiming to be Messiah. Claim to be him, saying, I am he. These false Christs will mislead many people. There's going to be rumors of war, rumblings about wars, nations and kingdoms fighting against each other, earthquakes, famines. But look, he says, but that is not yet the end. And he also says, all these things are the beginning of birth pangs, right? Um, that's in verse 8. And verse 7 says, this is not yet the end. So the coming of false messiahs, claiming to be Christ, hearing about wars and rumors of war, he says they must take place, but it's not the end. It's not the end. These are just the beginning of birth pangs. And uh, what, a, what a great analogy, right? What a great analogy the Lord gives as he starts to give this broad picture of the signs of his coming and what the beginning of the end will be like. Okay, that's the subtitle for today, the beginning of the end. Birth pangs describe the pain that a woman feels before she delivers her baby. Okay, what the Lord is suggesting is these things are going to escalate as the world gets closer to its delivery date, if you will. Right? The end of the age, the Messiah's second coming, and the birth of his messianic kingdom. Right? So some of us... Not us, but some of you ladies here know firsthand that some of us have heard uh, about those birth pangs, those pains of those contractions. When they begin, they start out light, but when they start to increase and intensify, they become stronger and more frequent as time goes on. They increase in quality and quantity the closer and closer to delivery. 
So it seems that Jesus' figure of speech implies that these false messiahs, these wars, these earthquakes, these famines, these plagues, these are going to increase in number and intensity as the end times near. So um, let me say really quickly that when the actual tribulation period comes, um, of which we learn about in great detail in Revelation chapters 6 through 19, um, and we're going to look more at that next week. Uh, it's going to be these travails and these, these, uh, dis- these disturbances will be at their greatest, their most terrible, right before the Messiah returns. Okay? So those false Christs, Revelation 13, it, it describes the final greatest human deceiver, the Antichrist. And he's going to have authority on the earth for three and a half years. Right? Wars. Revelation 16 talks about the armies gathering for war at Armageddon. Revelation 6. Famines. This rider on this ashen horse is given to kill one quarter of the earth with sword and famine. Plagues. Revelation 9. One third of mankind will be killed by three plagues. And earthquakes. Revelation 16 describes a, a great earthquake unlike any other. And so... Um, that's yet future, right? But the thing is, these things have been happening throughout the course of history for the last 2,000 years. And they're still happening today. Okay? So Jesus is telling the believers, don't be misled by false messiahs. Don't be afraid. Don't be fooled. Don't be frightened. Okay? This all must happen. It's all according to God's plan and purpose. Okay? In this in this age, in this season, before the end, before his return. Okay, it's not yet the end. And so there's uh, three kind of basic things that he, he tells about. Okay? So it's, it's deceivers, and it's, it's disasters, and it's distresses. So I just want to go over those um, just one by one for a bit here. Okay, he says, many will come in my name, say, name saying, I am he. Okay, people who claim to be Jesus Christ. People who claim to be the second coming, they're going to mislead many people. Did you know the first person after the time of Jesus who was definitely known uh, to be a Messiah claimant? Okay, he claimed to be the Messiah. A man named Bar Kokhba, okay, around A.D. 135, okay, roughly 100 years after this Olivet Discourse. First known claimant to be the Messiah. Um, the scholar Charles Feinberg wrote that there is a record of some 64 false messiahs who have tried to lead Israel astray, okay, particular to, to Israel, 64 false messiahs. Uh, to note, a few just in the realm of Christendom, uh, in more modern times, uh, two maybe that you, you've heard their names who claim to be the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. One was David Koresh who was the leader of the Branch Davidians. Um, because of him, back in 1993, was the first reason why I ever heard of Waco, Texas. But he led that um, whole thing, and there was a, uh, just people dying and everything. But um, he was one. Uh, another that you may have heard of is Sun Myung Moon, leader of the Unification Church, um, so-called the, the Moonies back in the day. He died in 2012. David Koresh died in 1993. Um, but did you know that there are people alive today who claim to be the second coming of Christ? I just did a quick Google search, and uh, it's, it's interesting just the, the number and, and areas of, of people. A guy named Inri Cristo, who was born in 1948, he's from um, a town in Brazil. He claims to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a man named Apollo Quibaloy, born 1950, of the Philippines. He's the founder and leader of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He claims that as Jesus is the Almighty Father, he himself is his appointed son. So in a sense that he's the, the son of God. Um, there's a guy from Croatia. Uh, actually, I think he died in 2020. His name is um, Ante Pavlovich. Uh, he was a self-proclaimed um, reincarnation of Jesus Christ, the Christ who has come. Um, back in here in the States, guy from Salt Lake City, Utah, Brian David Mitchell, who was born in 1953. 
He also claimed to, to be a type of Messiah who was going to bring in the kingdom. There's actually a, a woman also from the Soviet, former Soviet Union. Her name is Maria Devi Christos, born 1916. She's the leader of the Great White Brotherhood. Um, and so lastly, there's, there's others, but let me just mention one more. In Australia, Alan John Miller, born 1962, founder of the, a religious movement called the Divine Truth. Um, he also claims to be Jesus of Nazareth through reincarnation. So um, one might ask, okay, how on earth could anyone fall for these imposters, these deceivers? these false messiahs. How could someone actually believe that? Well, it's part of Satan's work to deceive people, to blind the minds of people. And also, just remember that Jesus had to warn the disciples about false messiahs, right? He says, don't be misled. They're going to mislead many, many people. They're going to fool many. So it was something that they needed to look out for because they were vulnerable. And these people will continue to turn up. And they have, they did, and they will continue. And we also need to be aware. And the, the climax is, is during the uh, tribulation once again, when the Antichrist shows up in the temple, right? And um, again, more on that next week. But let me just say this, folks. The, the best way for us not to be misled by false messiahs is to know the real Christ. Right? Know the real Christ. We must know him fully and deeply. We must see him in the pages of Scripture okay? as we go through the Gospel of Mark and everywhere else. Okay? We must know the real one, and then the fakes, they become obvious, and they actually become abhorrent to us. And let me say this, too, further. Maybe we're not susceptible to falling for one of these imposters today. Okay, but... Some of us here this morning might be in danger of creating a false Christ in our own minds. And this is just as damning as following a deceiver. Again, the only way we can learn of and know who the real Jesus Christ is, is by reading God's word, reading the Bible and believing it. And there's no other name under heaven given to man by which man must be saved. Acts 4.12 Okay, we are not only vulnerable to men who deceive us, but we are capable of deceiving ourselves. See to it that no one misleads you. No one misleads you. Okay, not even yourself. And for those of us who are in Christ, we're not going to be fooled. We're not going to be duped. But for those who may be sitting on the fence or just not, not sure of their salvation or not sure they understand who Jesus is, this is for you. So these are warnings about deceivers. Next, words about disasters. Okay, man-made and natural disasters, verses 7 through 8. As we know, the disciples were already wondering about the political situation, wondering when the Messiah, when Jesus is going to come and usher the earthly kingdom. There was political strife in Palestine. As to that political unrest, Vincent notes this. Quote, there were threats of war against the Jews by three Roman emperors, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. There were serious disturbances at Alexandria. In AD 38, the Jews were the special objects of persecution. At Seleucia, in which more than 50,000 Jews were killed, and at Jamnia near Joppa. Vincent also states that between this prophecy of Jesus, okay, about earthquakes and famines and stuff in AD 30, um, between that and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, there was an earthquake in Crete that was recorded in A.D. 46, at Rome in A.D. 51, at Apamia in Phrygia in A.D. 60, and at Campania in A.D. 63. He also notes four famines during the reign of Claudius, and one of those was in Judea in A.D. 44, which is actually spoken of in Acts 11:28. So those... Earthquakes, famines, these things have all happened, as Jesus said, like within that near future, that, that, that time of the disciples. And they have continued to occur throughout history. Obviously, right? We're on this side of things and we can look back 
on, on what's happened. Countless wars, nations fighting, kingdoms clashing. Okay, not to mention just uh, besides like official wars, right? The numerous battles and um, skirmishes and conflicts and rebellions and attacks. Uh, one source says that in the past 3,400 years, the world has known only 268 years of peace in total okay, out of 3,400. We've been through two entire world wars in the past century, and the threat of war is ever-present, looming possibilities of nuclear war, etc. Okay, even right now, there are at least 27 live conflicts happening in the world. And as bad as things may have been or are currently, and I think there are some times in, in, in history where people were living through and they're like, I think this is the end, right? But these are only foreshadowings of the final conflict. Okay? When the nations are going to surround Israel, only to be destroyed by Christ when he returns to deliver his people and brings in his kingdom. Revelation 16, Revelation 19. Okay, so just, again, I'm trying to keep things in perspective here. Help us understand, like, what's going on, how to understand this stuff and what's going on today. Right? Look, same goes for earthquakes and famines, right? These natural disasters have plagued the world throughout history. And we need to know that. To quote Stuart Weber again, he says, War, famine, and earthquakes fall into a category of events that, while not necessarily unrelated to the end, are only tiny ripples in the pool of history. And as I mentioned before, just, there's been incredible earthquakes, powerful tremors that have been recorded, um, just in, even in our own state of California, right? Just, it seems to happen every 25, 30 years or so. But these are going to seem small compared to what's coming in the tribulation. And I was going to read it, but I'm not going to. Uh, but Revelation 6, 12 to 14 um, you want to jot that one down. There's another later earthquake described in Revelation 11, verse 13. Um, just awful. It's going to destroy one-tenth of Jerusalem, and it's going to kill 7,000 people. And um, that's, that's just not even the worst. The worst one is in um, Revelation 16, verses 18 through 20. Okay? So, once again, the purpose of all these disasters and woes and Jesus telling about them is not to lure us into speculations about the end, right? Not getting over-obsessed and over-consumed with all these things, but rather to anchor us to being watchful and faithful in our lives in the present. Okay? Be, be believing, be believing, strengthen your faith, and, and be faithful and be obedient to Christ. So speaking of that, let's look next, the last part here. Wisdom for witnessing under duress and distress. Okay, so there was a warning, there were some words about disasters. Now there's wisdom for witnessing under duress and distress. And um, verse 9, Jesus starts off by saying, but be on your guard. Okay, look to yourselves. Okay, as in take heed. Look after yourself. Okay, another translation, you must watch out for yourselves. And listen, he's not talking only about their own safety. He's not talking about disciples like protect yourself. He's calling them to be alert against their own ungodly and unworthy actions amid persecutions to come and all the rest that's coming. He wants them to keep on believing and to faithfully endure the unjust treatment that they're going to receive for following him and for spreading the gospel. He says, be on the alert, be ready, be prepared, be on your guard. For they will, they will come, they will deliver you to the courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. Listen, that's like the, in the Jewish realm, they're going to be persecuted, specifically in the Jewish world and the system. They're going to be taken to trial probably before the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish councils that had all the power and authority there, the local courts that, uh, that were attached to the synagogues. Hey, this is the same religious leaders who are going after Jesus, like right now as they speak. They're going to be flogged in the synagogues. And this is what they did to Jesus before crucifying him. And I think we, we understand what fog, flogged means, right? To be beaten, to receive lashes and strikes. And literally to flog means to remove the skin. You're like stripping off the skin. In the New Testament, it describes the action of whipping and beating and scourging. And it was intended to take off the skin. Uh, to quote Heber, he says, To be flayed before these courts was considered a disgrace. 
and the beatings administered were severe, although limited to 39 stripes, end quote. But they would also be receiving persecution from the Gentile world. Right? Jesus goes on. He says, you will stand before governors and kings. He suggests the Gentile realm as well as the Jewish, because the Gentile world were the ones who were in political power. And so he says it's going to be for my sake, right? Why are they going to suffer? Why this persecution? Why this hatred from the world, from their own, from Gentiles? It's for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's for his name, for his glory and honor. Jesus says they're going to persecute you because of me. They hate all that my name stands for. Because they hated me, they're going to hate you. And we see this happening all through the the book of Acts, don't we? As Peter and Paul and the other apostles and disciples were spreading the gospel, they had opportunities to give testimony, to spread the gospel, to share Christ, to proclaim Christ. They were bearing witness for the sake of Christ, even before kings and authorities. And Jesus says that before the end, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And again, the spread of the gospel, the birth of the church is throughout the book of Acts. Certainly the gospel has spread far and wide then and throughout the last 2,000 years. And yet to this day, there are still many unreached peoples in the world. And some of you have heard of the 1040 window, yes? It's the the area of land um, in North Africa and Middle East and Asia between 10 degrees north of the equator and 40 degrees north of the equator. So it's this 30 degrees stretch of of land. Two-thirds of the world's population, 4 billion people. By the way, there's like 7.5 billion people in the world right now. 4 billion people live in that 1040 window. And 95% of those 4 billion people are yet unevangelized. 87% of them are the poorest of the poor in this world, living on an average of only $250 per family annually. And this was, uh, somebody recorded this back in September of this year. So Jesus says that all the nations must hear the gospel before the end of the age. This is part of God's will and purpose before that time. All nations would have an opportunity to accept the gospel. God wants this to happen. It will happen as Jesus clearly states here. So I want us to understand that this is, um, this is not a promise that if believers uh, in a particular generation will just be faithful to preach the gospel to all the nations, then, then God is going to bring in the kingdom. Okay? And so this is a part of what post-millennialism teaches. Okay? It's not that promise, nor is it a promise that everyone is going to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's not what he's saying there. Um, we should understand that man on his own power cannot bring in the kingdom even by universal preaching of the gospel. God is going to bring it in his timing. It's his plan, his appointment, and um, that's when it's going to happen. But that being said, whose responsibility is it to spread the gospel? Okay, while we're here on earth, okay, it's believers, right? Like, no one else is going to do it. The church needs to do it, right? Believers, disciples of Christ. It's part of what we are to be faithful in. This is part of the whole purpose of, of giving um, this glimpse and sketch of the future. right? When we read prophecy, what should we do, folks? How, we should ask ourselves, how is this affecting me? How is this affecting how I live on this time that God, this short breath of a time that God has given me to live on this earth for him? And so this is in fulfillment of Jesus' command in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So... We are to be faithful to do this even through much personal distress. Look, let's finish it up. Verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. What a great encouragement that would be to the disciples then and to believers now, especially under this type of hatred and violence and vitriol and anger that are coming to those who are faithful. And this has happened to believers throughout history, imprisoned, jailed for telling others about Christ, threats to their livelihood, threats to their own lives, threats to their families. 
The Lord gives believers assurance of God's presence in the Holy Spirit as we are just we just obedient. Okay, we don't we don't need to worry about what to say. God's going to show up and the Holy Spirit will give us the words. Even in our deepest need, even separated from our families, even removed from our, our church family, from friends, under the threat of torture. Hey, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week, right? As an Old Testament example. God will give grace to complete the service that he wants us to do in his name. And he'll even give us the words to speak amidst the worst kind of suffering. So persecution, speaking of that, will even break up families. And did you catch that point? Maybe that's the most painful of all, right? He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father to his his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And again, we've seen this kind of thing happening. Just uh, We hear stories and in areas of um, the Muslim world or, or just communist uh, countries um, with just that, that uh, heavy-handed authority. We read about missionaries throughout history. Just even one of our, our own, the Spitalis in, in Italy, we need to be praying for them. Um, their last newsletter shared uh, just in, in the last two years as their daughter, their teenage daughter, has been um, basically removed from their home for almost two years now and under the the, the, the care of the state and they've literally seen her like uh, like a handful of times in the last two years and um, their next meeting is, is potentially going to determine whether the parents go to jail or not and uh, due to um, uh, religious fanaticism and, and uh, that's, that's the accusation there. So possible imprisonment, um, so please be, be praying for them. But um, this, is, this is all part of it, right? Jesus says, you will be hated by all because of my name. Because of my name. That's the source of the world's hatred towards Christians. Jesus' name, the truth of who he is. As God, as the way, as the truth, as the life. Everything he stands for. <laughs> Even though his way is the one way and the only way of everlasting love and eternal life. So believers have been and are and will be hated. Hated, not, not for their errors or their personal faults primarily. And Peter tells us, don't, don't suffer for you know, your, your, own, uh, your own faults and, and uh, sin. But it's because they're Christians. That's the reason. Because of our name as Christians and Jesus' name. But he says the faithful will endure. They will remain. They will keep on believing Jesus all the way to the end, right? The one who endures to the end will be saved. And um, let me just say, this is both a a cheer, like a a sweet promise from the Lord, as well as kind of a demand, okay? Perseverance to the end, however bitter, is an evidence of saving faith. To quote Matthew Riddle, to quote someone else, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And so it's interesting that um, it's God who promises that believers will persevere to the end, but it's also he is the one who preserves us, Right? He's going to protect and provide endurance and strength for his people. And uh, listen to this. Just a couple of verses in, at the end of Jude. Jude, verse 20. He writes, But you, beloved believers, right, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, listen, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So keep yourselves, Right? Persevere, stay in the faith. But then, verse 24, just a few verses later, as he ends his letter, he says, Now to him, to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, now, and forever. Amen. So God is the one who's preserving us, even as he gives us the command to persevere, right? So it's 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 both and it's both and and um, what a what a wonderful 
charge and also what a wonderful, sweet promise from the Lord. So, folks, that was part one of being prepared for Jesus' return. Uh, I know that we were um, excited about hearing about the, the eschatological elements of, of all of this, and uh, rightly so, hopefully for the right purpose. But let me just remind you again, the point of all this is that we are to be exhorted to always be prepared for the Lord's return. Okay? Listen, Jesus doesn't mention the rapture here, does he? Okay, but again, when we get to the excursus or somewhere along the line in the series, we're going to talk about it. And so we're, we're wanting to be ready, ready for that. Okay? We're called to faithfulness at every moment of time, not, not just at the final moment of time. Okay, that's what's required of us all the way to the end. So, dear church family, part of our faithfulness is um, just even what we're about to do, right? Observe communion. Observe the Lord's table. This is his ordinance. This is his decree. This is what he has called the church to do uh, regularly. And so we, we gladly do that, but we, we want to do that um, in a way that's honoring to Christ, right? Making sure that we are um, taking this in a, in a sober way, in a way that is um, just uh, dealing with our sin and, and not just uh, taking it as a ritual or in, in any careless or, or reckless way. Uh, making sure that we're right before the Lord. And um, what a wonderful thing that is uh, that Jesus has, has commanded us to do, right? To, to make our relationship with him that much closer and our union with one another that much closer. So um, maybe I'll invite Joe Vega Sr. To, to start coming, and Philip, you can help with that. And uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, we will um, come together in the Lord's table just a moment. Let's pray. Dear God, I, once again, you have given us your word, which I'm sorry, Lord, if it wasn't uh, as clear as it could have been or should have been today, but uh, thank you for next opportunities in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, I just thank you, God, that um, you have given us a, at least a glimpse and in the rest of scripture, given us uh, what's to come, the end of the story, and uh, we, we know that you are the victor in it, and we get to take part in that. But, um, Lord, thank you that the point of all this is that we would be prepared, we'd be ready, and we would continue to persevere in faith in our precious Lord Jesus who died for us, and we'd be faithful uh, all the way to the end. So I ask that you'd uh, challenge us with that this morning and help us consider our lives, and um, even as we take the Lord's uh, table the, the elements uh, right now. God, uh, I pray that it's done in the spirit of um, just remembering, remembering and rejoicing in our, our Lord and Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.